Remember in the book of Ruth, it says that he took his shoe off and gave it to his neighbor? Okay, and we're like, huh? And even when the book was written, it says, because the custom of the time was, that's how you sealed a contract. So Stephen and I are going to write a contract. And we agree upon the terms. Instead of shaking hands, I take my shoe off and I give it to him. He's like, oh, thanks, man. That's great. What he does with one shoe, I don't know. But that's the seal of the contract. Maybe that's why it didn't last so long. Because everybody's like, what do I do with a shoe? I don't know. I'm not trying to belittle it, okay? But it's, it's how they did a contract back then. But if you don't understand that and you read it, you're like, that's weird. Okay, so Paul is writing this church in Philippi. So who is Paul? Who are these people in Philippi? How did the church get started? These are some questions you might want to know. Because when we look through the New Testament, we find Paul addressing different churches differently, do we not? When we look at 1 and 2 Corinthians, what do we know about the church at Corinth? Were they mostly spiritual people? No. Gentiles are one of the most corrupt cities in the whole Middle East, and they were living like Christians in a corrupt city. Much carnality in the church that he had to deal with. But when he writes to Philippians, is there a whole lot of correction in the book? Very little. But there's a whole lot of talking about, a whole lot of talking about? Because Al and I, right before service, were talking about talking correctly. Acts chapter 16, hope you're all there. Did I announce that already? If I didn't, that's where we are, Acts chapter 16. And let's start at verse 6. Now when they had gone through... Pergia in the region of Galatia, and were forbidden the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. And they were come from Mysia, and they essayed to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. Then passing by Mysia, they came to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, he immediately, we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly, gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samothracia, and the next day to Neapolis, and from thence to Philippi, which was the chief city of that part of Macedonia, and a colony, and we were in the city abiding certain days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city by the riverside, where prayer was wont to be made, and we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither, and a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized in her household, she besought us, saying, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. And it came to pass, as we went to prayer, and certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. The same followed Paul and us, and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this did she many days. But Paul, being grieved, turned again, again, uh, and said to the Spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And he came out the same hour. When her masters saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them in the marketplace under the rulers and brought 
them to the magistrates, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city, and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they cast them into the prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them in the inner prison and made their feet fast in stocks. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. And the prisoners heard them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundation of the prison was shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and every man's bands were loosed. And a keeper of prison, waking out of his sleep, seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must, we, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. So this is the when Paul arrived at Philippi and the start of this church. So let's go ahead and ask the Lord for guidance. And we're going to go through then and study some of the history so that when we get into the book of Philippians, we have a better understanding of what's being said. Father, again, thank you for this time together. And I pray, Lord, as we <coughs> excuse me, start this study again, Lord, that you would teach us and remind us that we could be, have a better understanding of your word Lord, not just for academic sake, but Lord, for the fact of knowing you better and serving you better. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's talk a little bit about Paul himself. Paul was a very educated man, was he not? Now, it's interesting because many of the disciples that were called were very common people. You had Peter, James, and John, who were what by occupation? Fishermen. And these were the ones that would <clears throat> use improper grammar. Paul would have been one who used very proper grammar. And actually, that is a very true statement. Because if you study Greek and you look at the writings of Paul, they're very precise. But you look at the writings of Peter and you can tell he's a fisherman. I don't mean that to pick on Peter, but understand in Greek, word order is not like it is in our language. In Greek language, the word order, the first word of a sentence is usually the word you're trying to emphasize. And then you have all these phrases that follow. And when you look, look at Greek grammar, there are some rules of how it's supposed to be put together. And Paul would follow those rules very precisely. Peter would just kind of, it seems like whatever came to mind, that he would put that next in the sentence. The Holy Spirit, remember, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. The Holy Spirit guided these men in what to write, but he used their education, their vocabulary to write. And so don't ever think that God can't use you because you can't speak well. He can use each one of us. He used Peter, James, and John, but he also used Paul. But not many wise are called. And, but Paul was definitely one of those. And we see in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, Paul says, Though I might have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews is touching the law of Pharisee. Concerning zeal persecuting the church, touching righteousness, which is the law blameless. 
But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. So Paul, talking about his education, saying that he is a Pharisee, he, he's a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I mean, Paul sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Paul was a very well-educated man. But before Paul became the Apostle Paul, he was Saul. And as Saul, what did he do? Persecuted the church. In a zeal for God, he thought as a Jew, as a Pharisee, he thought that this religious sect was wrong, and so he wanted to help destroy it. In the book of Acts, if we go back to chapter 7, we see verse 54, referring to Stephen, and when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, as, as Stephen was preaching. They gnashed on him with their teeth, but he, Stephen, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him and the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God, saying, Lord, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, I believe when we get to chapter 9 of the book of Acts, if you flip over to chapter 9, Starting at verse 1, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven, and he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Kicking against the pricks is the idea of an animal in the yoke. Many times they put some kind of goad behind them. If the animal would kick against it, it would hurt, so they would want to keep working. Or sometimes they would have a goad that they could use to keep them going. But the idea being, there was conviction in Paul's life. Now, I believe part of the conviction in Paul's life was the fact of watching Stephen die. This is one of those Christians that he thinks needs to be eliminated. But there's a reason why God puts every word in the Bible, right? As Stephen is dying, what does he do? Ask for forgiveness on those that are killing him. Where do we see that before? Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary. Now, let me ask you a question. If this religion were just a religion, if it were just some kind of sect that was just coming up, and this man were being killed for his belief, do you really believe that the first thing that would come to his mind would be asking forgiveness on those that are killing him? There was something to this. This is not just another religion. This is something different about what this Stephen has. And we know that that, that is a relationship with Jesus Christ, right? There's something different about this Stephen that as he's dying, he could ask God to forgive, if I'm Saul, me, standing here, being part of his execution. That brought conviction to Saul. And so when Jesus meets him on the road, he says, Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. 
Paul still thinks, okay, I still got to do this because there's something, you know, this is not what I was taught as a Jew, but I think there, in his mind, he's realizing there's something to this Jesus Christ. To the point that when Jesus comes to him and says, he says, who art thou, Lord? That's what Paul asked. Who art thou, Lord? I think he already knew, don't you? And Jesus then identifies himself and says, Paul, this conviction's really hard on you. You see, God was working in the, in, the, in the heart of Saul already. That Saul on that road to Damascus was ready to receive Christ as his Savior. And I believe a large portion of that is because of the testimony of a man named Stephen. And from this day forward, Saul was a different man. When he met Jesus Christ, his life changed. Saul went from being a persecutor to the church to being one who started churches. Paul, imagine this now. These very people that you were trying to gather and kill, all of a sudden, you're one of them. You know, initially, some of them, I think, were fearful. Would that not be a natural reaction if this man was known throughout the entire region of being a persecutor of the church? But there was a true conversion, and now he's one of them. I want you to think about this, Christian. How many times have I heard, or have you heard, somebody say, they'll never change. They can't change. They'll always be that way. And somebody's past is always forever held against them. What if the church had done that to Saul? What if they had held against Saul the fact that he before was a persecutor of the church, but now he is a brother in Christ? Yet many times when somebody lived a wicked lifestyle and gets saved, we, we have to make sure, well, we're going to check them out. We're not going to trust them yet because, you know, they have a past. Well, we're going to hold that past against them. Now, can God change an individual, yes or no? Some of you, I know your testimonies, are not what you once were. Aren't you glad that God changed you? Now, after Paul's conversion, let's go to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians 1 and verse 15. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood, neither went I up to Jerusalem for to them which were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him 15 days. So Paul was separated for three years getting his training, if you will. But it's interesting that even after Paul comes back, it still takes Barnabas to go get him and bring him and say, hey, this is one of us. He was a preacher to the Gentiles. Paul's heart always was for his people. Paul was a Jew, and he wanted to see his brothers in the flesh, the Jewish people, saved. Matter of fact, do we not find Paul at one point praying and saying, if it be possible, may I be, may I be a curse for them to live, if it were possible? Now, obviously, it's not possible, but we see the heart of a servant in Romans chapter 9. If I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ 
for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption, the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the service of God and promises. Paul says basically this, and I want you to understand this is the heart of a true servant of God. Paul said, I would be willing to go to hell if all the Jews could be saved. That's a pretty powerful statement. And it's only recorded by one other man in Scripture, and that is the man Moses. As God said, I'm going to destroy them all, Moses. I'm going to start over again with you. Moses says, God, for your sake, and I'm going to paraphrase, God, for your sake, don't do so. But if it's necessary, blot my name out of your book of life. That's two men that said, I would be willing to go to hell for others. Do we have that kind of love for others? Now, this is the man that God used to choose, uh, God chose to use to pen the words of the book of Philippians that we're going to study. This is the heart of this man that loved people so much, he says, I would be willing to die and go to hell if they had a way to heaven. Now, he knew that was not a possible thing, but I want you to think of that kind of love for people that Paul had. And then I ask, including myself, do I have that kind of love for others? Now, he went to Philippi on his second missionary journey, and that's what we read here in Acts chapter 16. The second missionary journey, Paul is going to Philippi, okay? We'll talk a little bit more about Philippi later. So this time he's traveling with Silas. Who did he travel with on his first missionary journey? Who was his traveling partner on the first missionary journey? Barnabas. And for a little while, John Mark. But remember, there was a contention between Paul and Barnabas over John Mark. And so Paul went his way with Silas, and Barnabas took John Mark and went another way. So we had two missionary teams because this argument or dissension between the two. Now, by the time we get to the passage here in Acts chapter 16, I want you to notice the pronouns say we. So who was the human writer of the book of Acts? I heard out say it. Luke. We're going to try to get somebody else to remember some of these things. Luke. So when Luke uses the pronoun we, okay, all you English people, what pronoun is that? It's a plural, but which person? First person, Troy. Say first person. In other words, Luke is traveling with Paul by this point. Now, if you read prior to that, it's around Acts 16.10 that it changes. Let's go back. So look at 16 verse 1. Then came he to Derby and Lystra, right? Verse 6, now when they had gone through uh, Phrygia and of Galatia and were forbidden the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, and they were come to Mysia. They essayed to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. And they, passing by Mysia, came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. And there stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go to Macedonia. So, who joined the party here? The party of travelers missionaries who joined him at this point it would be Luke because he's saying they he and now all of a sudden it's 
we, which means he joined the crowd. By the way, it is amazing to me how some preachers and Bible scholars will say words really don't matter, it's just the thoughts that matter. Well, here's another case where words matter, because it wasn't just this group traveling, but all of a sudden we have Luke traveling with them. And we see that by the pronouns. Now, he may have stayed at Philippi, but then by the time we get to chapter 20 and verse 5, we see the we happening again, which means Luke joined up with the team again. Okay, so Luke didn't travel with Paul all the time, but there were times when Luke traveled with Paul. So, as you read through the book of Acts, there's times where Luke is given an account of what others have told him. There's also times when Luke is given a personal account because he was there, right? All right, let's talk about the city now. That's a lot about Paul. And I think it's important we see all these details of Paul. And now, having that in mind, as we read through the book of Philippians, and as you read through all the Pauline epistles, that should give you a better understanding of the man that God chose to use to pen those words. Now remember, it's God's word, but he's using a man to pen these words. And understanding the man that God chose to use to pen the words is going to help you understand a lot about his writing right? Because isn't it interesting, while every word is the word of God, God still used human individuals, as we already talked about, not just their vocabulary and education, but their personality and, every, and their background and everything about them, and choosing that individual to write those particular books. So the city of Philippi was founded in 357 BC. It was named after Philip of Macedonia, the father of Alexander the Great. It became a Roman colony in 42 BC. So by the time we get to the writing of this book, it's been a colony for less than 100 years anyhow. Around, so it's not, it's not an old Roman colony. I mean, it's been around for a couple hundred years because it was founded in 357, but it hasn't actually been part of Rome for around 100 years. The citizens enjoyed a dual citizenship. Now that's important when we study passages like Philippians chapter 1. Let me turn over there. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27, which reads, Only let your conversation or your citizenship or your manner of life be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear your affairs which stand in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Also over in chapter 3 and verse 20, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence we also look for the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. So because they understood a dual citizenship, he was able to use this with the Philippians to say, hey, while you're citizens here on earth, remember our citizenship as Christians is in heaven. And you and I, Christian, have the privilege of having a dual citizenship. We're citizens of heaven. The area had rich, fertile soil and gold mines. The people were exempt from taxes. Who wants to move to Philippi now? <laughs> there was a medical school there, and it's debated whether it's the school that Luke attended. And the population was over 200,000 when Paul arrived. Now, that's a fairly large city, even in today's standards. The city of Havelock... We used to say 20,000, but our last census says we're down to about 16,500. 
and we're debating that. We think that the census got messed up, but let's just say 18,000. Now, I understand we're pretty small, but 200,000, so take our city times 10-ish. That's pretty large. So questions. Was Philippi a rich city or a poor city? Was it a rich city or a poor city? I'll give you a hint. It's in the region of Macedonia. And that's a big hint. You say rich? They weren't rich. They weren't rich. As a matter of fact, as we look at Corinthians and Paul addressing the at 2 Corinthians 6 through 9-ish, um, Paul addressing the Corinthians refers to the church at Macedonia, churches of Macedonia, of which Philippi would be one, or understand something too. Churches back then were not what we think of as church today. Church always has referred to the body of believers, not to the building. We think of church as this is our church, Freedom Baptist Church here, Bob, you know. But many times their churches would be house churches. So in the city of Philippi, it is reasonable that there may have even been more than one group meeting or the same group meeting multiple places, okay? By the way, we've got to get out of the mindset of church buildings being required to have a church because I promise you, if our nation continues on the path it's on, it's not going to be many more years, and we're not going to church, church is going to look differently than it looks today. I promise you that. I'm not trying to be a doom and gloom preacher, but let's just face reality, folks. Like China. We'll be meeting in people's basements or in the woods somewhere, and I hope you all still plan on being there. At that point, I think the whole idea of the suit and tie, will, we will lose it, though. But anyhow, many of these were house churches. So the... Church at Philippi was a very poor church, even though they had very fertile soil, had the gold mines and everything else. But let, doesn't that make sense? How many have ever met a miner that's actually rich? Right? Okay, just because the gold's there doesn't mean the guy digging it out that gets the money, right? It's just kind of the way it works. So, and they were exempt from taxes, maybe because they were so poor. Maybe there was the, I don't know, one of their incentive programs, I didn't actually study why they were exempt from taxes, but maybe because they were so poor, the Roman government trying to get the economy going makes them exempt. I have no idea because we try things like that today. Um, but the point being this. So as Paul was writing the church at Corinth, remember they had promised to participate in the offering that he was going to take to the saints at Jerusalem. And He's reminding them, don't forget you promised to do this. And by the way, the churches over in Macedonia found out about this offering. And when I stopped by there, they, they had this huge offering that you're going to be embarrassed if you haven't taken the offering that you promised to do. So even though they were poor, they were a very giving people, which should be a characteristic of us as Christians. Christian, we have time, talents, and treasure. Are we giving those to God? Are we giving of our time? Are we giving of our talents or abilities? Are we giving of our money to God? Not because God needs it, but because it's obedience to him. And when we don't give, we're stealing from God. But it's also 
was an example that Paul was able to use. Look at these poor Macedonians. They don't have two cents to rub together, yet this offering that they took is, is a big offering. Now, he doesn't give an amount of it, but it's the idea he's telling the Corinthians is it was a large amount because he says not just to their ability, but beyond their ability they gave, way more than they should have ever been able to give. I have no idea how they were able to give this much, Paul is saying. So Corinthians, I know you're rich. So they gave out of their poverty. Why don't you give out of your richness? And you should be able to at least match what they gave. Kind of the idea, not the exact wording, but kind of the idea Paul is saying is, if you don't at least give that much, there's something wrong with you. And isn't it interesting that those that are poor are typically the ones that give, and those that have are typically the ones that are stingy with what they have. And you know, that, that still applies today. I meet people that don't have two cents to rub together, but they'll be the first one to give you the shirt off their back. And I meet people that have plenty, but yet won't give. I don't think we're going to make it through today. Now, I know this has not been a lot of introductory material, a lot of historical material, but yet still many things which we could apply to our lives. First of all, as we looked at the Apostle Paul, a man who gave his all for Christ. A man who, when he was saved, there was a true change in his life, who is used to God greatly. Are we submitted to God in the same way? And as we look at this church in Philippi, although very a poor church, yet a very giving church, and we see also a very happy, rejoicing church. Christian, our joy does not depend on our circumstances. It should depend on our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's bow for a word of prayer.